It is Thursday, July 20th. Welcome into Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry will be joining us shortly to talk about the rise in white supremacist violence that followed the Obama years. It's in his new book titled American White Lash. And you can chime in. Email studio2 at whyy.org with your questions and comments for Wesley Lowry. And again, that email is studio2 at whyy.org. We're also going to talk today about evictions in Philadelphia and calls to change the process after violent encounters. We're going to talk with WHYY's Aaron Moselle about that shortly. Also, as I said at the top of the show, it is Thursday. Trivia! (laughs) I mean, Studio 2 trivia later this hour. Um, But also, before we get to all of that, (laughs) we got to talk about some news, Cherry Gregg. Uh, You're going to take us to the movies first. Go ahead. Yes. Um, Thursday, July 20th, it means that it's Barbenheimer weekend is upon us. Director Greta Gerwig's long-anticipated movie, you've probably heard of it, it's called Barbie... (laughs) And Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer, they both hit select theaters today. The full release is tomorrow. Now, the movies, Avi, you probably heard about both of them. Couldn't be more different. Barbie is bright, colorful humor, poking fun at the toy itself. You're very brave, Ken. Thank you, Barbie. Yeah. You know, surfer's not even my job. I know. And it is not lifeguard, which is a common misconception. Very common. Yeah, because actually my job... It's just beach. Right. And what a good job you do at beach. Okay. Love it. Okay. <laughs> and you put that up against Oppenheimer, which is about the birth of atomic weapons, and it chronicles the Manhattan Project. We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Even no the, beach. I know. No beach. Music even <laughs> sounds really different. There are bigger stars in Barbie, like Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, probably heard of him, versus Irish actor Killian Murphy, who's done a ton of work with Christopher Nolan. Um, and and so in the audiences, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but both films are so expected to pull in lots of money. Oppenheimer expected to pull in 50 million. Barbie, over 100 million just by Sunday. The phenomenon is real. <laughs> yes, uh, are you going to see these films? I, don't. I might see Barbie. You might see Barbie. Yeah. I, I never go to the movies. I'll be honest. I don't understand. I, I don't get it. Yeah. But I'm fascinated by the fact that two movies that are so different have inspired like a, a shared movement. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't get it. I wonder if anyone will ever be able to pull it off again. Um, but it fascinates me as an observer of culture, mm-hmm. Cherry Gregg, not as a moviegoer because I don't, like I said, I don't do it very often. Well, you know, they've tried to put our faces on the Barbie thing online. Oh, I mean, remember that? Are yeah. we going to talk about that? No, we're not going to talk about <laughs> okay. that. But like the marketing has been huge. It took over the, you know, social media. Yeah. And I got to mention a quick local tie to Oppenheimer. Yes, yes. You know, our folks love that high, you know, know listeners here um the wilmington-based dupont company was part of the manhattan project we're not sure if they'll make an appearance in the film but dupont company produced enough enriched uranium-235 to make the bomb that destroyed hiroshima but i will mention that they were not involved in any decision to drop bombs in those japanese cities so there you go but there was that connection with the manhattan project right here in Wilmington. Always a local connection. Yep. Um, let's keep it local. Yeah. And talk about Harrisburg. Democrats in the Pennsylvania State House 
have had a slim yeah. one vote majority over their GOP colleagues. This thing keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Um, but now it's in the fourth category now because uh, one representative is resigning to focus on her run for Allegheny County Executive. This is State Rep. Sarah Inamorado sent a letter to the speaker yesterday with her resignation. So it's a little unclear what exactly this means for how Harrisburg will, will function. There's going to be a special election to to replace Inamorado. This is a heavily Democratic district, and the special election is being held very quickly. Uh, no, no, no surprise or coincidence there on September 19th. So it is possible that um, by the time the summer break is over, Inamorado will already have a replacement in place. Um, but, but there's... Whenever stuff like this happens, there's some uncertainty, not a lot of precedent for situations like this. So it's just something to monitor. Yeah, I will say, if you think about it strategically, this move is politically savvy, the timing of it, because we saw last year the type of havoc that came when a resignation came post-election, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With former Representative Summer uh, Lee and Austin Davis, Republicans held off on that special election. They drug their feet. So this may be sort of like a reaction to that to make sure that, you know, there was no delay whatsoever. Yeah, nothing happens by chance. No. Absolutely not. And quickly, we're going to talk about phone books. Probably haven't seen those in a while, right, Avi? Uh, yeah. When was the last uh, time you think you opened one? When I, oh, gosh. No, I, a long, 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 long time ago in a galaxy yeah. far, far away. Far, far away. I don't know why I would ever <laughs> use it. We have uh, the search bar here at the top of my screen. Yeah. Sure, I use that all and the time. I use my phone a lot. Uh-huh. So interesting article today on Billy Penn by reporter Fallon Roth about phone books. Over 100,000 are still delivered to Philly residents each year. But as you can imagine, there's a huge generational divide as to who uses them because you and I and like many young people, especially young people under 18, probably have never heard of a phone book or touch one. But uh, we rely on Google searches. But a lot of folks over 65, they like their old old school phone books. 100,000. That's nothing to sneeze at. Nothing to sneeze. Phone books. Mm -hmm. Hanging on. Hanging on. Bye. Doesn't feel like it's (laughs) going to hang on all that much longer, but they they are hanging on for the moment. I do. I do enjoy the tactile feeling of flipping yeah, through the phone book. Yeah. I was also always fascinated by people who memorize the phone book. That was sort of like a parlor Ooh. trick of like memorists. Am I using that phrase correctly? Um, uh, Interesting. Like in the past, there were mm-hmm. these people who would like memorize sections of the phone book and, and recite them. Like go on like talk shows and stuff like that. I would I, just look it up. My... It's a real thing. Google it. Don't I'll phone have to book Google it. it. Yeah. yeah, and I, I just want to call myself AAA something because then you'll be at the top of the list and more people call you. <laughs> wait, 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 what? Yeah, like there was like theories that if you had A's and you're at the top of the phone book, uh-huh. you get more calls. But why would you want more calls? Because you would love to get more business. If you're a oh, business, call oh, yourself oh, AAA, oh, dry cleaning, it. for got example. It, got it, got it. We'll call you I first. thought you were talking about you personally. Like no. you would change your name to like Cherry oh, A-A-A-A no, 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 Greg no, 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 so no. that random people would call you. I was a business you. owner. Got it, got it. Uh, glad we squared that away. Yes, Absolutely. Um, Let's also square away the fact the Women's World Cup is underway, down under. New Zealand and Australia are the dual host countries this year. Uh, this got, if you probably missed it because it happened while you were sleeping overnight. The U.S. is, as always, in the Women's World Cup, one of the big favorites. They are the Yay. defending champs. Their first game is Friday, July 21st against Vietnam at 9 p.m. Not a lot of local ties mm-hmm. on the roster this year. Uh, goalie for the U.S. side is a Penn State grad. Uh, there's a backup who went to Rutgers. And people, of course, know Julie Ertz, um, mm-hmm. who's not local, but is the wife of a uh, former Eagle, Zach Ertz. And she's a big star for the team. And and so um, 
our, our guy Nick Karayuki. Yes. Wrote a, nice little, wrote a nice little uh, like primer on where you can go to watch Women's mm-hmm. World Cup games if you are local. And uh, hopefully it'll be an exciting tournament. Yeah, check out Nick's story on WHYY.org. And so with all that list, with the list of places to watch. And so now we're going to get into our newsmaker, mm-hmm. Avi. Um, an eviction on Tuesday in Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood ended with the tenant in the hospital after a court-appointed landlord-tenant officer opened fire our very own Aaron Moselle who's is the planned Philly reporter here at WHYY has been covering this welcome to studio Two, Aaron thanks for having me Aaron what are landlord tenant officers who employs them and what do they do yeah so in Philadelphia unlike in other parts of the state we have kind of an odd system where we have the Philadelphia Sheriff's Office which people are probably familiar with they do some evictions but The majority of evictions, and when I'm talking about evictions, I'm talking about actual lockouts where people are, you know, thrown out of their homes or told to leave their homes. Um, Those are carried out by what are called landlord-tenant officers, and they are uh, private contractors. Uh, They are hired by a private attorney who is appointed by the courts, um, and landlords pay them to do lockouts, to deliver uh, various eviction-related paperwork. Um, and it's confusing for people because they often do think it is the sheriff's office showing up because people just don't know that the yeah. office exists and they don't know what it does. So they, are, they, are they uniformed? Are they plain clothes? Like, what do they, they are? Like? And they pl- physically show up? At they physically place. show okay. up. Uh, they will knock on your door and say, you got, you know, at least according to attorneys, that you got 10 minutes, get your stuff, get out. Um, they are armed. They are not necessarily in uniform. Um, They don't necessarily, I think they have an ID number, but they don't have like a traditional badge you might see with a Mm -hmm. sheriff, deputy. Um, They are not sworn law enforcement. They are not government employees. They are private contractors paid uh, by this private attorney who is known as the landlord tenant officer, um, been around since the 70s. And so let's dig into this particular incident. Um, what, because ex- I'm thinking this, a regular looking person shows up to tell you to get out. They're armed. Um, what happened in this incident? And I understand this wasn't the first time recently where someone ended up shot. No, this recent incident on Tuesday was the third time in the, about the last four months that uh, one of these deputy landlord tenant officers fired their gun. Uh, there was... Uh, in late March, a woman was shot in the head during an attempted lockout. Um, and then in June, um, there was uh, another incident with a gun where a, a dog was shot at. The dog wasn't hit. No one was injured. And then most recently, you had this woman um, in Kensington who was shot in the leg. Now, what happened, um, allegedly, is that one of these landlord-tenant officers showed up um, and it was not a peaceful interaction with the tenant. Mm. The tenant allegedly physically assaulted the property manager and also um, went to attack the landlord-tenant officer as well. Um, And at one point, allegedly, there was a a knife involved where she was wielding a knife and was directed to stand down. Essentially, she didn't, and and a shot was fired. Um, I'm told um, basically to, you know, disable her. and she went to the hospital in stable condition. But, you know, it's still shocking because this is not what typically happens with these landlord-tenant officers. As I said, they've been around for about 
you know, for decades, and violence is not a common um, theme here. There was an incident years and years ago where a tenant actually shot one of the landlord tenant officers. But in terms of the landlord tenant officers firing their weapons, that's pretty unusual. And so to have sort of a string of them here, it's really alarming housing advocates and elected officials who were saying, you know, yeah. this is already a, a violent you know, process. And now we're actually talking about physical violence. In the near term, what has been done in response to this? And what are the potential long term reforms people are putting out there? Right. So nothing really happened until yesterday. And what happened yesterday was that the landlord tenant officer, Marissa Shooter, um, agreed to stop doing evictions hmm. um, until basically further notice. And the agreement is that she'll retrain all of her deputies in, you know, de-escalation and, you know, how to properly, you know, when to discharge your your firearm and all that stuff. Um, It's a little vague on kind of when it will be clear that, you know, this this officer can resume their function. Um, So for now, it's just the Philadelphia Sheriff's Office that will be doing evictions. It's unclear how that will play out because, as I said, they are not typically who's showing up. Hmm. to these to do these um and so we have that as as the first major step and then there there is some legislation in harrisburg to uh basically bar private law firms from carrying out evictions and it's a statewide bill but it's pretty directed at philly because as i said other jurisdictions do not do evictions in this way and actually another state lawmaker has introduced another bill which is aimed at at doing some reforms um, that have been called for on the city level so that's all in progress so it's a little bit of a wait and see yeah i understand there's some retraining going to happen because i'm thinking that's a very traumatic emotional moment when you're being evicted we only have 30 seconds any work to Yeah, the training is a big part of what people are calling for in terms of reforms, um, because training is not required to do this job. Um, You know, so they're looking to sort of professionalize, bring more transparency. No no training. No training is required. No. And there's no real guidebook like you see in other cities. So Mm -hmm. it's all about transparency, accountability and predictability, because a lot of this happens because people don't know when and what time and what day they're going to show up. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, that is Aaron Moselle from WHYY's Plan Philly. Thanks for joining us on Studio Two, Aaron. Yes. And coming up, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Wesley Lowry will be here talking about his new book, American White Lash. We want to hear from you. Email studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back into Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, do you remember the night that President Barack Obama gave his acceptance speech in Chicago's Grant Park? Absolutely. It was such an emotional moment, and he gave such a powerful speech. I think a lot of people believe we were at a turning point in this country with the election of the nation's first black president. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders 
if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry starts his new book, American White Lash, at that hopeful point and what it might mean for race relations in this country. But as Lowry explains, with progress comes backlash. And in the years that followed Obama's election, there was a sharp increase in racially motivated hate crimes and membership in white supremacy groups. In fact, Lowry writes that on election night in 2008, there was so much online traffic on white supremacy sites that several of them crashed. And Wesley Lowry is with us here in Studio 2, actually, to talk about the book, Cherry. Yes, uh, and the rise in racial violence, the perpetrators behind them, and what it says about America and its history. And you all can join this conversation by emailing us at studio2 at whyy.org. Wesley Lowry, welcome to Studio 2. Thanks so much for having me. I always love to be here. Yes, I want to dig right in because one of the big arguments you make in the book is that America has sort of been in this tug of war since its founding. Mm -hmm. On one side, you have a racial caste system with whiteness at the top. And on the other side, this quest for a multi-racial democracy, right, where all people are equal. And there's this pendulum swing. I want you to first define white lash and then put that in the context of your theory in this book. Of course. So what we see over the course of our history is that at our founding, our country is established as a white supremacist society, right? A society in which we've created racialized distinctions in which people who are coded as white receive the full privilege of American liberty and freedom. And those who are coded elsewhere, whether they be indigenous or black, do not receive that. And throughout our history, we see movements that are seeking to upend that, that are arguing for multiracial democracy, that we that we recognize even those people who are coded as not being white are fully human, deserve full enfranchisement. And, and so throughout our history, we see these pushes and these pulls. We see activism around abolition. We see activism around civil rights. We see activism around equity. And in response, each time our country takes steps forward towards multiracial democracy. People who perceive themselves as having benefited from the system as is and who oppose those steps lash out and act out. So we see the waves of violence uh, that that come uh, amidst the abolitionist movement, following emancipation, during the civil rights movement, uh, following uh, the attempts at school desegregation um, and integration of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now, in response to the severe demographic change of the country via immigration and the election of a black president. And so we've now lived in a time and we live in a time currently where we've both seen well, – we've seen a series of things. We see white Americans becoming increasingly racially anxious. There's a poll that by the end of the Obama administration, 55 percent of white Americans believe they are racially discriminated against. Mm. Right? It took exactly one president for the majority of white people to believe they were racial minorities. Right, which is kind of like insane to think about, but true. Mm-hmm. We see a because of that, we see a rise of a nativist movement, right, that plays on those anxieties and those fears, right. And so, who do we replace a black president with? Well, a candidate who is openly nativist, whose key promises are to build a wall to keep brown people out and to keep all the Muslims from coming into the country, right, and goes about attempting to do both of those things. 
um, and who denigrates um, and, and capitalizes on the otherness of that first black president uh, to, to build his movement. And, and then we see a rise and an increase in white supremacist violence, right? So it, it's a funnel. It gets smaller, right? You have the big group of all of the anxious white Americans and you have a smaller group who join this kind of explicitly nativist movement and you have an even smaller group who join now this white supremacist movement. At, which at its core has always been worried about immigration and demographic change and replacement types of things we hear in our conservative media all the time yeah. now. And they commit attacks. They kill people. Yeah. And so the result is by the end of this, not very long afterwards, what we see is a uh, is the FBI director coming out and saying the greatest threat we face in the country is mm-hmm. from domestic white supremacist terrorists, right? We see people in Pittsburgh and Buffalo and El Paso and in Charleston White Americans committing massacres of black Americans, Jewish Americans, immigrants, and doing so explicitly because they see themselves as soldiers in this kind of race war that they think is coming. And you kind of focus in a way to, to continue your, your metaphor and sort of like the tip of the funnel, the people who manifest the violent beliefs into violent action. And you tell several stories mm-hmm. uh, in this book about those people and what they did. Why structure the book that way? I think that there are a few things. I think that if we're going to live in an era of increased racialized violence, it's important for us, first and foremost, to understand what has actually happened. I think it can be too easy sometimes to say, well, it's unexplainable. This was about hatred. Let's light a candle. Let's feel bad about it and let's move on with our life. Mm -hmm. Well, no, no. Why did this happen? Right? Because we're all should want to live in a world where we prevent it from happening, right? So how did this person end up with these beliefs? Where did it come from? Who encouraged them, right? And I think we have to grapple with that. But then secondarily, if we're going to live in a moment of this increased amount of violence, how do we tell the stories and record for history the stories of the people whose lives were lost? And so what I sought to do through a series of vignettes was to tell stories from this era, from the Obama years to the Trump years, that capture the complexity of this white supremacist movement and try to place these individualized incidents into a bigger and a broader context. So we don't see them as aberrant. We see them as, as tied together. Correct. And I could, because I think that that actually services uh, the people who, who would want this type of violence, to think of these as these individualized lone wolf attacks that can't be explained and there's no way to understand it. Well, this is actually a very deliberate plan that was laid out by a white supremacist movement, um, and they're seeing what they what their fantasy was come true in a lot of ways. And so, and we have to, to take it seriously. Requires us to understand those nuances. And if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of a new book called American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. We want to hear from you. You can email us your questions or comments at studio2 at org. I want to talk a little bit about the white supremacist movement in the sense that um, one of the mm-hmm. things you mentioned in the book is that we study you know, the civil rights movement. We've studied like the LGBTQ plus movement and uh, the women's rights Mm -hmm. movement. We've studied all these movements, but there's not a lot of study on the white supremacist movement. Can you talk about that a little bit and put it into context? Because we sit here, we try to talk about, you know, this white lash and things that are happening, but we lack this historical context or understanding because we've 
a lot of folks just don't study it. Yeah, well, and, and I think that context is important. And there are great academics who've done that work and some folks in law enforcement, but in our kind of popular mm -hmm. culture and popular public square, right, there's much less of an understanding mm -hmm. of how this movement works, what its ideologies are, what its tactics are, what its history is, right? We very often look at and we receive these micro updates about all of these kind of individual iterants, right? So we'll get obsessed with one group for a little bit or these people over here. And it's very hard, just as a layman, even those of us who are journalists and reporters, to follow and understand, okay, what's the difference between the Proud Boys and the Aryan Nation and the neo-Nazis and the, right? And so trying to understand and place all of this into a context and also understand that in the moment we live in now, that there is a... <clears throat> a shared mission across these groups, that it's important. The distinctions matter, right? Mm -hmm. But that for us, it, it is important to also understand the similarities, right? That we can, that it's, you can't really understand the distinction between a Presbyterian and a Catholic and a Baptist if you don't understand the distinction between Christianity and Judaism in the first place, yeah. right? Like, yeah. so we can get into all the stuff, mm -hmm. but let's zoom up, upward for a second, right? Yeah. I think what's true, you know, I, I cite David Chalmers, who's a great historian. He wrote The Definitive History of the, of the Klan. And he writes about how the Klan, for all of its history up until the civil rights era, is a dispositionally conservative movement, right? And I think that's something we can think of that is true of a white supremacist movement at large, right? These were people who were willing to use violence to maintain a status quo. They weren't trying to overthrow the American government. They weren't trying to – no, they were winning, right? right? They, they, they were just trying to prevent any additional change. That once we get through the Civil Rights era, after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, right, which lays the groundwork eventually for the election of a black president or the changing of the immigration laws the way it's happened now, right, that suddenly we are no longer in law a white supremacist country. We are now ostensibly a multiracial democracy. These organizations, the Klan specifically, go from being dispositionally conservative to dispositionally revolutionary. Yeah. They now need to overthrow the government the way it is. They're trying to spark a race war. They're and so you see this. You see the through line in the rise mm. of the militia groups and groups like the Order, Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City, through the Dylan Roofs and the Robert Bowers in Pittsburgh, right? That their aim truly is to foment broad societal violence, ultimately a full war. Right, not maintain the order, topple the order. And, and so they can reestablish what they believe has been lost right. in the service of their delusional beliefs about, you know, race. There are stories in here of people who are virulent, unapologetic racists. Mm -hmm. But the one that stuck with me was the story of a teenager from Long Island who claims not to be that and yet uh, murdered an Ecuadorian immigrant named Marcelo Lucero. Um, and uh, his name is Jeff Conroy, and I believe his section ends with him saying, I'm nothing like what the paper said about me. I'm not a white supremacist or anything like that. I'm not this serious racist kid everyone thinks I am. Who's Jeff Conroy, and what does his story tell us? Jeff Conroy is, at the time, he's a teenage boy, a high school student in Long Island. And I opened the book with Marcelo Lucero's death, his murder. Um, and Marcelo Lucero is an Ecuadorian immigrant. Him and his brother had moved uh, to Long Island at a time when the county executive was uh, really demagoguing immigrants and refugees 
there was deep concern. This is in the midst of the economic downturn in 2006, 2007. There's deep concern in this neighborhood about will incoming migrant labor depress property values or cause competition in schools for resources. And so immigrants and undocumented immigrants, or they would have called them illegal immigrants at the time in, in the rhetoric, became the scapegoat in the local politics, so much so that teenagers like Jeff Conroy would go out to to pick on and look for immigrants to fight and attack on the weekends. That's how they spent their, their time. And Jeff Conroy goes out one night with a set of other young men and ultimately stabs and kills this man, Marcelo Lucero. Now, it comes out in trial that Jeff Conroy had... Um, when he was arrested on his intake form, he marked himself as being a white supremacist. Him and his buddies had given themselves tattoos, and he had gotten a swastika and a thunderbolt done on him, which were both obviously white supremacist images. And yet so much of the trial, right, so much of the conversation publicly was not about this question of, well, okay, how is the way that our political rhetoric demonizing immigrants has led to this type of violence and led to this type of environment? It became a tribunal about whether or not it's okay to call this kid a racist, yeah. right? Mm. This kid who has murdered an immigrant because he was out seeking to murder, to harm people of color who has a self-given Nazi tattoo, yeah. right? And but so, the defense was like basically he has non-white friends. Yeah. You no, know, he's got a black friend. He dated a Hispanic girl. Yeah. Like he's a yeah, nice yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. He plays lacrosse, right? Yeah. And it And it spoke to I think what sometimes is this kind of – endlessly cyclical public conversation we have about this where, you know, we this is a case where we actually literally have like a Latino man who's been murdered mm-hmm. and the conversation is about like, will it hurt Jeff Conroy's feelings if we call him a racist? Yeah. The murderer. Right. And so it, it creates this very, inter- it, I think it speaks to our inability sometimes to apply the lessons of this, right? One of the clear lessons here was the way that the politics and the demonization and the rhetoric had led to violence, right? And instead, it becomes this whole thing of a bunch of people saying, but it's not okay to call us racist, even though here in our community, we've been demonizing immigrants and now one is dead. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to bring in an email from one of our listeners. Joe emails us from Collingswood. He says, I think you have to put a large amount of blame on the conservative media that actively sought to take advantage of this to promote conservative causes. They raised a lot of racist accusations as soon as Obama took office. And that kind of ties to my question because you centered this book around this moment in history, mm-hmm. 2008, when uh, Barack Obama uh, was elected to this highest office in this country. Um, and I remember like one of my first stories as a journalist was asking the question whether we are post-racial. Mm-hmm. And there was like all this discussion about the post-racial nature or the shift in America that occurred because of this one day. Um, I want you to talk about the delusional idea that and, and that, that it seems like you're saying at this point we were kind of like delusional a little bit. But then it seemed to have happened every time there was these major points of progress throughout history, this idea that we've, we've dealt with this issue of racism. Well, and I think that cuts in a few different directions. The first, and we say all this, I don't think any of this is to take away from the historic import of the election of a black president, right? Yeah. It is obviously a massive historical moment, right? I think part of the issue, though, is the public framing and desire for that moment to say that we have overcome a thing or got beyond a thing, right? That we talk about this idea in journalism of, you know, we cover the world as it is, not as we wish it would be, 
Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people who would have loved it to be true that what this meant was that therefore we've we fixed it, racism solved, right? What is also true, though, and I would add, I think there's a there's a kind of a white normative perspective to that. Most black people I knew at the time were convinced he'd be assassinated in the first four years. That is true, right? Yeah. Black people were not thinking, "Oh, we've entered a multi, you know, a, a post-racial society." Right? It was almost exclusively white-led institutions that were pushing this narrative. The media and our political institutions, right? And so I think that there was just like a, but but I think that even stepping aside from that, just a knowledge of our history. Right, a sober knowledge of our an understanding of our history would have suggested that this that what we were about to see would be a conservative, nativist, reactionary backlash. That to elect a black president and the amount of vitriol and movement that had risen in opposition to him even prior to his election, mm. as if those folks would just disappear. Right. Uh, I, I think that that's one of the things we really struggle with and it's very difficult for us is to properly apply histor- the lessons of history to our contemporary politics day in and day out. Speaking with Wesley Lowry, uh, author of American White Lash, if you want to join the conversation, you can email us, studio2 at whyy.org. Um, in societies around the world, unfortunately, there is sectarian violence, in-group, out-group mm-hmm. violence. What do you think distinguishes the American manifestation of that from, from, from other countries around the world? Sure. I mean, I think that one thing that is true is that so much of that violence here is still so specifically about a subclass of people who we held in bondage here, right? That there's a unique relationship between black Americans and the laws and structures and institutions that were that were constructed to keep them in bondage, right, in the vestiges of that, uh, that a lot of the sectarian violence we see elsewhere is downstream of similar societal ills, and, but it's not specifically, specifically. our relate. You know, um, what is also interesting, though, is even when we go beyond violence, right, we see these ideas, these ideas of nativism, of economic and material scarcity, of a nationalism, who is French, who is English, what does it mean to be in the UK, what does it mean to be a Brazilian, what we see these types of tensions, we see these types of anxieties mobilizing nativist, conservative, reactionary movements across the world right now. Mm. And and it's not exactly the same in every place, right? But you go interview a bunch of Brexit voters yeah. about why they you know, sabotage their own economy. And the answer is they were scared about immigrants coming in and taking all their jobs, immigrants who weren't coming in to take all their jobs. And many of these people didn't live in places anywhere near any of the immigrants, right? Um, If you look at – if you interview a bunch of Bolsonaro supporters in Brazil, you're very likely to encounter very similar racialized attitudes, right? And so we see these these same dynamics. You know, I think that – we both have a unique history and a, spe- a history that is specific to us that we have to grapple with and deal with um, and also that Americans are humans just like everyone else. And so the things that are effective in terms of political rhetoric, strategy, the hopes and fears and dreams, those are the same hopes and fears and dreams of the people around the world, right? And so yeah. when we're struggling with something, we can pretty much bet someone else's too. So American white lash fits in a broader narrative even if there are specifics that are – as the book title suggests, 
uniquely American. Sure. I mean, you think about it. What what is more human? What what is a more historically successful political tactic than saying the enemy and the savages are at the gates and, yeah. and I am the strong man who can build us a wall and build us a moat and keep them out and protect you and your loved ones and our race, whatever that is, right? Yep. Again, not biological races, right? But our village, our town, our country, right? And fundamentally, at its core, that's a lot of what we're seeing playing out, not just in our politics, but in politics elsewhere. I got to ask you, because you quoted us saying, we don't have something as embedded as slavery anymore, but we're going in diametrically opposed positions. We're ripping ourselves apart from each other. I certainly think that's true. It's a soft civil war. I want you to talk about this idea of a soft civil war. And then where does this leave us? What should we be doing with this this new understanding? And by the way, we only have like two and a half minutes. Oh, well, I can fix it all in two and a half minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think the question that we face still, and I think that a lot of us came up believing it was a settled question, and I think that might have been, and I think that was at least part of the mistake in terms of our ability to understand it. The question we face and that we continue to face at the core of American identity is who are we a democracy for? Are we a multiracial democracy or are we not? Right? Are And what does that mean? And I think that we really are seeing at the core of a lot of our political debates and our most heated political debates are questions of whose voice and whose vote counts, how it should count, what it, how entitled each of us individually should be to liberty, to safety, to freedom, right? How things in our systems that are currently inequitable, what extent is it our responsibility to right those things, right? That are we truly a democracy if people are not handed an equality of opportunity? And I think that that is, it remains at the core of both the anti-racism activism happening in our era, but then also the backlash to it, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that that remains kind of our battle line. And I don't think it's a, and I don't think it's a given that we all decide that we want to be on the same side of that question. There might be some folks who say, no, 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 that's not what I want for our country. And, and you know, I, there's not a, just because we've structured, we've operated one way for a long time doesn't mean that's always what will happen. So... The question that I end up asking myself after reading this and considering the book is, is this messy, uneven story that we're telling the story of progress, or in this moment, is it the story of stagnation or even backsliding? Mm-hmm. How do you come down? I think that, I think what's hard is that we don't quite know the destination yet. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't know where it lands. Uh, that, that history you know, is, is constantly cycling and it's constantly moving. That the story that a Titanic is a totally different story before it hits the iceberg than after, right? Mm-hmm. The story of the Roman Empire, the Greek is very different depending on when you're writing it. And, you know, we've been a democracy that's lasted just about as long as some of those other ones. Um, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't sound very optimistic. Historic, yeah. Historically, such societies don't last much longer than the one we've had so yeah. far, right? Uh, that do That ruling such a big, complicated place full of different people is really complex and difficult and – and so the question becomes, right, who are we? What do we want to be? How will we do that? And I think the jury is still out on exactly where that lands. That seems like a pretty good place to end it. Land at uh, the ship. You know I've right done this there. once or twice. <laughs> That's Wesley Lowry. His new book is American 
White Lash. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Wesley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And tonight, Wesley will be at the Free Library at 730, talking with the wonderful Tracy Mattisak. So be sure to check that out. Coming up, Studio 2 Trivia next. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg on this lovely Trivia Thursday. And with me is my favorite trivia source, the one and only Mr. Avi Wolfman Arendt. Your favorite trivia source? Yeah. How many go. trivia sources do you have? <laughs> You're my only, so there you go. My favorite. Your favorite and your favorite. least favorite. Yes. Uh, with us today is my favorite current trivia contestant, Yay. Jim from Wynwood. Jim, you're on Studio 2. Are you ready to play? I am ready and raring to go. All right. I, I, like, I like also good Jim attitude. from Wynwood. It has a nice ring to it. Um, so this is how it works, Jim. Um, got a multiple choice question for you. If you answer correctly, mm. we're going to send you a coveted Studio 2 grocery tote bag. Does that make sense, Jim? Uh, it not only makes sense, it'll save me from dropping a dime every time I go into the supermarket. So go right ahead. <laughs> well, you got to win first. It's not, it's not in the bag. Ha, ha, ha. ha, ha. Ooh, good uh, one. All right. So, Jim, <laughs> listen up. We talked about the U.S. Women's World Cup team earlier. Uh, for the first time since 2003, the U.S. Women's World Cup team will not include this South Jersey native and soccer legend. Are we talking about A, Carly Lloyd, B, Abby Wambach, C, Mia Hamm, or D, Brianna Scurry? Ooh. Ooh. Boy, the one page I don't read in the paper is sports, so <laughs> oh, my man. heart is sharpened, and I am going for number four. Oh. I like. I really like that you just took a guess, though. You didn't even think for a you second. You leaned all the way in. Jim said, "I'm not even going to. Cons- I'm not going to yeah. mull. I'm just going to go for it." You were wrong, unfortunately, Jim. Do you want to know the answer? Please go ahead. <laughs> the answer is Carly Lloyd. Carly Lloyd is a native of Delran, New Jersey, I believe fourth all-time in uh, goals scored for the mm-hmm. U.S. women's national team, uh, recently retired, but she's going to be an analyst. Yeah, on Fox. On Fox, for, okay, yeah, for, this, for, this, for this World Cup. Yeah. Jim, I'm so sorry, but you, uh, I really like you, and I wish you had one. Well, all I can say is I will make do with paper until I am able to triumph. Well done. Uh, we're all doing what we can with what we've got. That is Jim from Winwood, uh, And a reminder, if you want to be the next Jim from Winwood, become a trivia contestant. The number to call is 215-351-0525. I will be definitely heading out this weekend, Avi. It'll be a nice weekend. But if you're still looking for things to do, WHRY's Tanya Pendleton has you covered. Hit it. If there's anything we love in Philly, it's food. And if there's anything we love more than food, well, there's nothing we love more than food, but a close second is drink. In this week's Things to Do, you have multiple options to do both. As you may have heard, Zahav is one of the best restaurants in the city, but it's hard to get a reservation there. Now you don't have to, as earlier this month, they started a walk-in patio service. You know, I grew up thinking that if you wanted to be a professional chef, 
that you had to like sous vide and wrap things with like transluminase and chicken skin and while those things are fantastic and the techniques are brilliant and you can really achieve awesome cool stuff you know meat that is like marinated or ground on a stick over charcoal and you've got the acid and the salt and the spices and the smoke this is the way that people want to eat in Philadelphia that's chef Mike Solomonov talking to Eater about how he conceived Zahav. The patio is first come, first served, and only open from 5.30 to 9 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday with an a la carte menu. But it's one step closer to finally getting in. They're serving up all things Barbie this weekend as the movie starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling hits theaters on Friday. Blondie's and Manny Young's Barbie pop-up goes through July 28th. Enjoy specialty drinks like Ken's Kiss Frosé and Barbie-themed sweets to soak it all up. Attire, Barbie Pink. I can take the heat, baby, best belief, that's the moment I shine. I could dance, I could dance, I could dance. Watch me In University City, it's time to dine because University City Dining Days starts tonight. That means discounts at participating restaurants in the area, which serve a diverse variety of cuisines from Vietnamese to African. We're talking pre-fixed three-course lunch and dinner options from $20 to $40. With those kind of prices, you already know it's a good idea to make your reservations in advance. If that song doesn't take you back to childhood, were you ever even a child? Hearing it was like the Pavlovian call to arms for ice cream-loving kids. If you want the same feeling that the sweet treat gave you back then, head to the Ice Cream Festival on Filbert on Saturday. It's hosted by Bassett's, a Reading Terminal staple since 1892. The free pay-as-you-go festival offers up kids' activities, a live DJ, ice cream-making demos, and summer Santa. It's July. What better time to take a pic with Santa and a dripping ice cream cone? The festival goes from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. After all that eating and drinking, you'll probably want to burn some calories. If so, you can head to the Philadelphia Belly Dance Teacher Showcase. It's happening at Pivot Ballroom in Ardmore on Sunday. At the showcase, several styles of dance will be performed. There will be belly dance-related vendors and open dancing, with teachers happy to show you how it's done. The ticketed showcase starts at 6 p.m. You hear that? It means Shark Summer has commenced at Camden's Adventure Aquarium. It's their annual celebration of the big fish that goes from now through August 20th. During the event, you can walk through the shark tunnel and listen to a daily chat that explains why shark senses are so acute, why they lose so many teeth, and how they can survive in their aquatic environment. You can also see the scuba tooth fairy swim with the sharks, and you can even adopt one. But you can't take them home. <laughs> If you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favor nor your hate. Lesser than Macbeth and greater. Not so happy, yet much happier. Thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So So all hail Macbeth and Banquo, Banquo and Macbeth. There are no more dangerous predators than human ones, something Shakespeare explores in The Tragedy of Macbeth. Delaware Shakespeare Summer Festival, now in its 21st year, will perform with their billing as an innovative production of Macbeth in Wilmington's Rockwood Park. 
It kicks off on Friday night with performances going through August 6th. Shakespeare is timeless, and so is the Dave Matthews Band. They'll be in concert at Freedom Mortgage Pavilion in Camden on Friday and Saturday night in support of their latest album, Walk Around the Moon. Broke old toys, soldiers lined up, one, two, three. A little kid and everything I did just to save my paper queen. The show starts both nights at 7.30. And that's our time this week. If you want details about what you've heard or information on even more weekend events, including where Art Under the Stars will be or where you can see the Premier League in Philly, that's right, soccer is coming to Philly, head to our website, whyy.org slash things to do. I'm Tanya Pendleton, and I'll be back next Thursday with more weekend options. Whatever you choose to do, have a great weekend, everyone. Lots going on. There always weekend. is. I love when Tanya lays it all out for us. You got anything happening this weekend? The answer today <laughs> and next week is no. It's always no. I got nothing going on. I got this show going on. Yeah, that's I true. Got that baby. True. That's that's what's going on. I know you're you're doing something. I'm right? gonna probably visit the Delaware State Fair and then hang by the pool. And we gotta shout out Amos Lee again, who was on the show this week performing tonight at the man yes which i would have loved to go to but like i said i don't do anything jerry i don't do anything you, gotta, anymore. you do baby I that's do baby you know you'll come back to you'll come back to the social scene pretty soon well that is it for our show today our producers are debbie builder Paige murray bessler and andreas copes charlie kyer is our engineer Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. For more of our show, head on over to WHYY.org slash studio two. You can also download us wherever you get your pods. And don't forget to rate and review. Rate and review. Rate and review. Rate and review. (laughs) From Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi. Rate and review. Wolfman Aaron, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Love it.